Hello and welcome to Our Three Cents, a podcast celebrating the very finest video games. My name is Jonathan Dunn and I'm joined, as always, by my childhood friend, Chris Dow. Double Mikein. And my adulthood friend, Minty Booth. I am his adulthood friend. And we are discussing our all-time top 100 video games. This week, we have our number 83. But before we do that... Quiz. It is currently 8-7 to Minty. So, Chris, can you pull it back? I hope so. I was doing really well at the beginning, and then uh, I've just I've lost this lead. I've lost it. Pride cometh, mate. The final boss in the NES version of Punch-Out is... Mike Tyson. Huh. That is correct. In some territories, wasn't he called, like, Mr. Dream? That's not the answer on the card, Chris. So uh... I know, but I think I think they lost the license at some point after after he got embroiled in uh, eating people's earlobes. Oh uh, yeah, they took him off, and I think he was replaced in later revisions. So we have had a question come in from the Twitterverse. Hello, oh, I know. So Big Pigeon Podcast have been in touch asking us what we think the best Sega Mega Drive Disney game is. Mm. That's over to you two because I have never played anything on the Mega Drive. Well, oh, Minty. I didn't have a Mega Drive. Oh, Jonathan. I know, I know. And I thought, I'm not going to let Chris <laughs> steamroll this one. I do have a memory of the Aladdin game. Yeah. I think I spoke before when I first time I saw Lemmings being played, I was like, that's the pinnacle of gaming right there. <laughs> and I had the same reaction when I saw my friend Philip Alexandrakis playing Aladdin on his second Mega Drive when we were children. And just thinking, well, that looks exactly like the film. Yeah. And and it does. <laughs> I have since tried to play it again. Not as good. Not as good as I remembered. But um, still, yeah. you know, a great to look at game. Disney have always been quite good with games rather than just kind of doing the tawdry movie tie-in tat that, you know, other studios are happy to sort of churn out. Disney have actually put their name to some pretty good stuff. Yeah, definitely. I had a... A great memory of renting out the Master System version of Castle of Illusion. Very, very good game. And uh, and have played the the Mega Drive version, and in fact the the remastered version um, again. Mm. Oh yeah, it got fantastic uh, remastered a few years back, didn't it? It did, it did, Chris. Yes, Chris. What are your thoughts? As a piece of trivia as well on Aladdin, uh, Aladdin was the first one or first sort of tie-in game where Disney gave uh, some of the film stills to the company doing it. Ah. So the, the reason the reason the animation holds up so well is because it was literally you know with the, like the storyboarding and stuff that they they had in the studio. But my my pick for Mega Drive would be the Toy Story tie-in game, which was done by Traveller's Tales of Sonic R fame. Ah, very good. And it uses kind of a, a digitized sprite style, a bit like Donkey Kong Country. Sure. But it was kind of notable at the time because it came out very late in the the Mega Drive's life. I think the Saturn had already been on the shelves for almost a yeah. year. Yeah. Well, Toy Story came out in '95. It still was was really great. And they sort of added a lot of different genres into one game. So ostensibly, it's still like a a 2D platform game. But there were stages with kind of like top-down racing. There were stages like an almost kind of mode 7 into the screen driving section. There was like a 3D Doom style stage, like a first-person one. Obviously. uh, Where you had to... Kill Bo Peep. (laughs) No, you were were inside the claw machine and you had to rescue the little um, alien dolls. But yeah, very, very good game. There we are. If anybody else has any questions that you'd like us to answer or stuff you'd like us to discuss, then please do get in touch with us on Twitter. What have we been playing this week? Last week. How's your randomised Zelda questing going? Oh boy, what an ordeal it was. So when you generate the ROM, there are a few different settings that you can fiddle with. One of them is the victory condition. 
The first one I did was just defeat Ganon. So that meant that I could bypass a couple of dungeons because all you need to defeat Ganon is the seven crystals. So for this one, I thought, ah, whatever. This, that last one was easy. So I'll do all dungeons and also I'll mix up all the keys as well as all the items. And oh boy, I now know where every single chest is in the game. <laughs> My knowledge is encyclopedic. I've probably forgotten how to do something extremely important just because the sheer amount of knowledge I've had to soak in. Well, Minty is actually recording this lying on the floor for he has forgotten how to sit on a chair. <laughs> but that's the price you pay. In addition to uh, my console exploits, whenever Mrs. Minty goes to sleep, I squirrel away her mobile phone and I have a few rounds of Matchington Mansion. So, you know Bejeweled? I'm aware of it. Well, this one, it's like Bejeweled, but instead of jewels, it's cushions. Ah, yeah. And as you complete various stages, you get a star, which you can then trade in to Tiffany, who is sort of your live-in mansion renovator. Oh, yeah, yeah. We've all got one. <laughs> so two stars will allow her to pull the lever under the stairs. Not a euphemism. <laughs> Chris, what have you been playing this week? Yeah, I was all geared up to start playing Portal 2 after we've discussed Portal 1 and Portal 2 the last few weeks. Of course, I was derailed in part by Tetris 99. Obviously. Yeah, up to 16 wins now, so still chugging along. Not bothered. But no, in, instead, even though I had Portal 2 sitting on top of my Xbox... You need to put it in the Xbox player, <laughs> you know. Well, this is the thing, because seeing the box, I was like, it's a lot of effort to get that. <laughs> So, instead, so uh, instead, I've been playing Kane and Lynch, a really very average third-person shooter. That's the only real notable thing about it at the time was it was the game that got Jeff Gersman fired from uh, GameSpot, where he was working at the time, for giving it a bad review that the publisher uh, got him fired. That's what? That's not fair. Yeah, it's crazy. There's a few of those over time, but that was like a big one. There was like a big industry shift at that point in journalism. But yeah, he then went on to form Giant Bomb, and he's doing very well for himself. Good trivia. I have been playing the new game by From Software, Shakira Never Dies. No, <laughs> Sekiro Shadows Die Twice. You got it. I mean, it is absolutely brilliant. It's classic From Software. It's hard as nails, but not unfair. <laughs> you learn a lot from dying and trying again. I think I spoke a few weeks back about Bloodborne and how that had sort of streamlined some of the aspects of Dark Souls. And it feels like uh, Sekiro has streamlined that even further. The, the combat system is really, really fast and fluid. And the movement is, I mean, that's kind of the thing that really sets this game apart. You free flow movement, running around, jumping, using your prosthetic arm as a grappling hook to pull yourself up oh, onto buildings. It's a lot of fun. Shall we move on to the rankings? Yes, please. Why not? Minty. Please, go first. I bought this game off a friend when I was in year 11. It was one of my first and only PS2 games, because the PS2 belonged to my sister. It follows the story of a sporting wunderkind trying to get home after a big old soggy beast ripped him from his reality, which turned out to be a dream? I think? So he was this sort of this weird entity that was some kind of spirit that lingered after a an ancient holy war, and he was basically created along with everybody else who survived that war, that created to perpetuate sort of an idyllic dream version of the city that was destroyed. But then he appeared in the real world because the big aforementioned monster just gobbled him up and spat him out, I guess. So that's that. 
<laughs> Anywho, he doesn't really like his dad, and boy, do we know it. So he washes up on a tropical island where the local sports team is missing a star player, and much like comic relief, this white man is able to swoop in and solve all the problems of these plucky indigenous folks. <laughs> <laughs> but then he notices a pretty girl and gets mixed up in a plot to defeat the very monster that brought him to this place. And all kinds of uh, political intrigue is uncovered. So we end up saving the world by destroying most of the sort of the weird status quo that relies on sacrificing the person you love most to kill that monster that was born of the last person who saved the world, sacrificing who they loved most to kill the monster that was born of the last person, and all the rest of it. Now, obviously, uh, because I played this when I was in year 11, I had things to worry about, such as... Um, acne. Acne, getting laid. <laughs> School, maybe? No. Yeah. I completed the main quest. Because it was one of many games in this particular series, which I have come to love very fondly, as I was playing the other games in this series, I read up on this game as well to see what I'd missed. Oh boy, I missed a lot. <laughs> which is part of the course with the, with the games in this series. This is getting re-released on the Switch soon, and I'm really excited to really get stuck into it. I finished the main game, but as always, I didn't really have time to delve into sort of post-game content, uh, the super bosses, the rich lore, uh. which is present in, uh, in these games. When it comes out on the Switch again, I'm going to get all the ultimate weapons, I'm going to get all the summons, and I'm going to kill all the super bosses, and I'm going to become just saturated in the deep lore. So at the end of the day, the real Final Fantasy X is the journey Tidus goes on and the friends he makes on the way. <laughs> Final Fantasy X is one with Blitzball, wasn't it? Is that the sporting thing? Yes, it is. It's, it's a game I, I know literally nothing about other than there's Blitzball when it's like underwater volleyball. It's like handball, but underwater. Ah. So instead of kicking the ball, which you can do, you swim it and <laughs> throw it as well. At what point in the series, in the Final Fantasy series, did it stop being proper like old fantasy and become crossing over with the real world because i wasn't i mean i've never played a final fantasy game i would probably say it was definitely a shift probably around the mid 90s the first five games certainly had that sort of alternate fantasy world mm -hmm. with very traditional elements you had the four warriors of light who used the power of the elements to defeat goblins and wizards i love a goblin you do you're famous for it <laughs> final fantasy 6 was the one where um it kind of became more of a real world setting where the stakes were a lot higher than just oh there's a big monster and we need to harness the power of nature in these crystals it was more sort of as the party of adventurers need to stop this um, and then, of course, Final Fantasy VII rolls along. Changes everything. Really changes everything, actually. I might get that on the Switch, or I might not. Chris, what's your game? My 83rd favourite video game of all time is the oldest game on my list. Ooh. Oh, boy. It kind of goes right back. And I don't know if that'll be the same for you. It might, might predate your choices, I'm not sure, as we go further up. But this came out in 1982. Bloody hell. And it is the arcade game Robotron 2084. Robotron 2084. Very forward thinking in the title. But of course, I, I didn't play it in 1982 because I hadn't been considered or conceived, let alone having been born. But it, I played it when it came to the Xbox Live Arcade on the 360 in kind of like, I don't know, late 2000s it probably came out. And it was famous as a game not 
because it was the first arcade game to use this control scheme, but it was one that kind of popularized having dual stick controls. Ah. So the left stick would move your character around and the right stick would let you shoot in eight directions. And when it came out on Xbox Live, it was one of the hardest games I think I've ever played. (laughs) The Xbox Live arcade was brilliant because it was a real seismic shift where you had huge AAA titles that you could go and buy in the store, like say Gears of War or Grand Theft Auto 4 was around that time. But it also was the beginning of, you know, being able to get hold of indie releases like digitally. And at the same time as like, what was it called? The Virtual Console on the Wii was letting you kind of play older games. You know, the Xbox and the PlayStation Network kind of did very similar and started releasing these older titles, drip feeding them. So it let, let me play these things that, you know, I never would have even known about, I suppose, otherwise. Roboton is really, really simple in execution. Basically, it's like a single screen action game. So you're just dropped into an arena which fills the whole screen. And you've got essentially like milliseconds to kind of pass where the enemies are because you have to destroy all of them to progress and where the little human figures are because if you collect them, they give you points which then earn you extra lives. So it's like a really simple just score attack type thing to see how far you can get through. And then each time you do beat a stage by by beating all these enemies, you get a, a weird like psychedelic transition of colour, which then wipes the whole screen and, and starts the next one over. It gives you epilepsy. It probably would. I, I think it's the type of game that, dev, you know, they, they were not making those allowances back in uh, 1982. <laughs> so I think playing it now, it would be a, a warning for anyone that does suffer from photosensitive epilepsy. But I say it's kind of, you get these milliseconds to, to kind of make these choices because even by the time you've reached maybe the fifth or sixth stage and each one is only like a handful of seconds long at the, at the start, death can be like absolutely instantaneous because you're not just contending with kind of enemies moving around the stage and trying to find the little human collectibles, but moving obstacles that you that can kill you that you can't kill or projectiles that home in on your location with kind of real efficiency. So you, you've basically got no chance, which is why it's, it's such like a Bruce Lee hard game. Yeah. And it's kind of, it's, it's all about movement and just management of space. And because of that, it's kind of the lineage obviously goes up to games like Geometry Wars, which is, you know, like a direct kind of descendant, I guess. But I think it also can be seen in stuff like the, the way you play Smash Bros, when that's like a, a high tier way of playing. You're, you're looking to kind of contain your opponents in certain places whilst also being able to manoeuvre back to where pickups and weapons appear. And it's the same thing of just like managing enemies, managing collectibles and making sure you've got control of the whole space. So it's, it's like a really simple concept, but that essentially is is present in a lot of games we play today in some way and i mean i quite like a lot of old arcade games like slightly more modern arcade titles like by the time we got to kind of like ghouls and ghosts or a little bit further on like metal slug and stuff like that the big ones people know about they're games that because they're in the arcade it was meant to be difficult it's meant to make you spend money and you can only really beat a game like that if you've memorized kind of the stages layouts and where enemies are going to pop out from and that kind of thing. Yeah. So you can be a real expert with the, the way you're controlling a character, but you're still not going to be able to make much progress unless you've been there before and kind of learned what's going to happen. Whereas games like Robotron, it's all about being reactive. And I really like games that let you get good at something. And I think you enjoy that because you, you know, you're obsessed with stuff like Dead Cells. That's all about optimizing your own kind of knowledge of, of a game yeah that it's you know you, you learn every time you play and, and you're getting stronger just being able to kind of read the stuff around you as opposed to just having to memorize the same bits so I, th- I think it's it's a game that you can get good at you know it could be just because back then when when you're developing games people would have like a very small amount of memory to work with so enemy placement and enemy behavior and stuff like that was probably i don't know more economical i suppose to do it just with like algorithms and little like loops of code as opposed to saying, I'm going to, you know, hand curate a stage. But I think it means that in the same way, something like Pac-Man wouldn't be any fun if it was just, you know, you knew exactly what ghosts were going to do. It's something that you you see and you have to then 
react to so like i say it's kind of like a reactive game as opposed to one that you just memorize and, and play by rote and I, I quite like that we've just pulled it up on youtube and oh boy it it looks very intense yeah it's hard work i mean i, I would really say if, if you ever get a chance to play on an actual arcade machine like the place up in um Berry that i've been to before the arcade club that i've mentioned in the podcast once or twice they got it there yeah they have one there and, and the last time i went like i played it for a good hour just like making steady progress each time just you know getting back into the zone i think we should definitely do a field trip at some point the three of us to there i, I would love to yeah i'd really love to but yeah it's, it's really really good and it's it's nice to play it with like the proper joysticks and kind of just get more of a feeling that you don't necessarily have if you're just emulating it or playing on the xbox or whatever and i mean it's, it's one of those games that i like geometry wars like I've, I've always quite enjoyed that as a series and those kind of twin stick games and the most recent one i think geometry wars 3 had like a huge career mode where each stage had like its own little gimmicks or its own sort of play field that was a certain shape or, or certain enemies or whatever and it's it's fun but i don't enjoy it as much as just playing robotron for 10 minutes it's just more kind of instantly challenging and instantly rewarding as opposed to something that's kind of... It's like the more you put into something that's very kind of pure like that, I, I think the more you can kind of drift away from what actually makes it fun. And it's one of those games, like I say, it's, it's great to play in person. And one day in this kind of like fantasy world, it'd be great to have a house where I had space for arcade machines in just a big old garage or something. Oh, mate, you get nothing done. No, I know. But like, I'd love to have a Sega Rally cabinet. I'd love to have a Robotron cabinet and a few more that might be further up my list. But yeah, it's, it's a great game. A really, really pure game. But like you say, it's, it's really intense. But that's kind of the, the appeal, I think. Fantastic. Well, that's a, an entirely new game to me. So, uh, yeah, thank you for thank you for sharing. Thank you for bringing that's it all right. to this table, Jonathan. Hello, mate. Tell us your eighty third video game. So, my eighty third favorite video game is I think it's the first of a series that's been mentioned by us. Oh, lovely! It is a Lego game. Oh, lovely! Oh, Lego! And uh, my pick is Lego Harry Potter. Yes, right, great. Yes, there's something incredibly satisfying about the Lego games. They're very simple. They're built around. What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Really, no pun intended. There. <laughs> Mainly built around collecting stuff, finding stuff, doing more stuff. It's it's just a really satisfying system. No sort of real great combat systems or, or, or deep lore. The first Lego game I played was the Lego Star Wars games, and they were really, really good fun. I had a really, really good time playing them. But I must say that I'm not as big a fan of Star Wars as I am of Harry Potter, and I'm a huge Star Wars fan. <laughs> so that gives you a little glimpse into how big a fan I am of Harry Potter. I really think that that was actually at the best that the Lego games got in terms of the movies that they were representing because it's a very fine line between spoofing a movie and having fun with it and parodying it because I mean Harry Potter is a very easy thing to spoof I mean I remember there was some book like Harry Plopper and the Chamber Pot of Azerbaijan or something mm. <laughs> and it's like it's, it's easy to take the mick out of yeah. but that's not fun for people who actually love it it, d it didn't show sort of real love and care for its source material which I really think the Lego games do yeah. and certainly with Harry Potter it had a real kind of love and affection for the story it was telling whilst also retelling the stories in a very funny way and a very clever way but not something that compromised the integrity of its cherished source material mm -hmm. I think uh, they're the best Lego games the Harry Potter ones uh, yeah and, and this is coming from someone who's not a Harry Potter fan 
really. But I, I played through both Harry Potter games, the one to four and five to seven. Is it split like that? That's right, yeah. And 100%ed both, like everything. And like you say, the, the way it kind of had reverence for the, the source material. One of the nice things about it is I think it was probably one of the last games that didn't have any voice acting in it. Star Wars games did it and it was really, really nice. Very sort of visual comedy, uh, slightly slapstick way of telling the story. It's making the most of wordless gags. And it's something that was really lost when I remember when I got the Lego Lord of the Rings game. And again, you know, I love the Lord of the Rings films. And this is the first one I played where they'd actually used samples from the film to to then have the Lego characters acting it out. And it's like, well, that's, it's, I don't know, it lost a lot of charm. Mm, There's something definitely. really, really lovely about seeing these little Lego figures wordlessly acting out scenes from Harry Potter in, you know, and 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 to see the, the level of creative thinking that's gone into how they can communicate it. A real standout moment for me was at the end of the first Lego Harry Potter game, one to four, where Cedric Diggory's killed by Voldemort. And over his dead body, Dumbledore comes down with like a little set of instructions on how to build a Cedric Diggory toy and then sees like his dad <laughs> crying and is like, whoops, never mind. <laughs> 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 and uh, that was hilarious but there was comedy like that and and wonderful storytelling throughout the entire of the harry potter stories that were told in the game and it was something that really felt like it added to the harry potter world i think that in terms of what i've always wanted from a harry potter game which is basically just to explore hogwarts and explore areas it did that wonderfully and it's done it better than any of the harry potter games i've played by by a long way um just having hogwarts as this hub to explore and the more spells you unlock the more areas you can unlock and there's loads of secrets to find it was an absolute joy and you know then to have some wonderful set pieces telling all these great moments from these stories that i really loved featuring wonderfully adorable little versions of characters that i absolutely love was it just made it an absolute joy to play fantastic game i think without a doubt by a country mile the best harry potter video game and i'm tempted to I, in fact i almost bought it this week actually on it was on sale on the um on the switch so you get the complete collection oh is it on the switch now i, I played it on yeah. ps4 i still think that there's a lot of potential for uh, a real proper blockbuster harry potter world game are you excited for the uh niantic harry potter AR thing, oh, the Pokemon Go thing. I don't know. I there's I mean I can't see I mean it's a, such a great fit for Pokemon because it's Pokemon's about exploring and yeah. collecting. Can't see how that's gonna work for Harry Potter unless you're walking around Hogwarts. And I'm not, I'm walking around <laughs> Cardiff. Splot. And I love Splot. But you love uh, Diagon Alley more. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, I don't know. I, I'm I'm certainly intrigued to see it, but I was bitterly disappointed with the last Harry Potter mobile game that came out that was one of the worst balanced freemium games. Oh, I remember whole articles about that. Mm. It was, I mean, shocking. Absolutely shocking. I didn't put any money into it. Well done. That's very commendable. Thank you. So there we have it. Another three games. First we had Final Fantasy X. Then we had Robotron 2084. Then finally we had Lego Harry Potter 1 to 4, 5 to 7. So all in all, that is 2,111 great games. <laughs> that's very quick maths Jonathan thank you very much if you've enjoyed this episode or indeed any episodes please do leave us a five star rating leave us a review share it with your friends 
You can find us on Facebook now if you search for Our Three Cents. If you want to reach out to us individually to ask any questions, feedback, say anything you want, really, within reason. You can find me at Jonathan Dunn. You can find me at Chaz underscore Hodges. Nobody's reached out to me. I'd like to keep it that way. But if you feel the itch, I'm at Minty Booth. And please do join us next week for a very special Easter episode. Jesus. Jesus.